Hey everyone, welcome back to the Missio podcast. Um, I just want to start by saying just how much we love being a part of this church family at Missio with everybody. It's just one of our greatest joys um, and we just love being a part of this with you. And, and I want to say that th- I think that says a lot honestly about you all as a church uh, and who we are as becoming as a church And how we're truly on this journey of becoming church as family, which is what we're going to be talking about kind of for the rest of the year uh, in our teachings. Um, I hope you all really feel that sense of family. Um, But we need to be honest about a little thing about family because family can be challenging, can't it? Like if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes family disappoints us and they let us down. We've said this many times at Missio. That family has the ability to love you the greatest and hurt you the worst. And this is part of the vulnerability that comes with being family. The fullness of, of who we are, right? The good, the bad, the ugly is kind of presented before all of us. And we, we choose what we're going to do with that information that, and that vulnerability. But as we're going to continue to discover on Sundays for the rest of the year, becoming the family of God together has the ability to bring joy and purpose, healing and intention in so many important ways into people's lives. And this is ultimately what church as family is all about. Over and over and over in the New Testament will be this overarching narrative that the nature of family shifts with Jesus. From the Old Testament, which was predominantly the Israelite people who were the chosen family of God, to the moment of Jesus opening the family to the nations, causing this ripple effect of God's family extending to the ends of the earth. And honestly, I'm I'm kind of becoming all too aware of the reality that my own children are not always going to be under my roof. We were having uh, dinner as a family one night, and this was a few weeks back, and the conversation about college started happening. My oldest daughter is only four years away from uh, going to, to college, and at first, my youngest son, who's seven, was really concerned that it was you know, only a few more years before my daughter was going to go off to college, and I think he kind of thought that when she leaves for college, like she's never going to come back. She's never going to be in our house again. Uh, She's never going to be a part of our family. But then he kind of discovered that people come home for college and even sometimes live with their families for a little while, right? Which eased his concern a a little bit. But now it kind of feels like now my seven-year-old reminds me at least like once a week that he only has 11 more years before he goes off to college. (laughs) It's like we'll just be like walking past each other in the house and he'll be like kind of half-heartedly like 11 more years, daddy. Like it's coming up. And I honestly don't know what to do with that. But there is this genuine unease uh, within mine and Laura's hearts about our kids leaving our home to become adults in the world. And yet part of the call of parenting is to follow the way of Jesus, who sent out his disciples to the ends of the earth, right? And I love the way that Jesus, throughout his ministry, would do basically the exact same thing that we do as parents. Jesus would give his disciples these little moments, these little responsibilities that would increase in depth and scope as they developed more in their understanding of life in his kingdom and what that meant and looked like. And I think one of the things that honestly brings me hope is the trust that I have in churches like Missio 
who become family for and with my kids as they are sent out to the ends of the earth, carrying that depth of kingdom life within them. You know, the church as a family is probably one of the most hopeful truths for me, me personally, because I realize that I have a limited time with my kids the way that it is right now. And here's the thing, that that hope that I have for my kids, finding a family uh, like the one that we have at Missio, you know, once they become adults in the world, it doesn't start when they leave the nest. Like that's not where my hope begins. It actually starts now here in the present moment with us as a church at Missio. And so if you've probably pieced together, this new part of our series is what we're calling What If Jesus Was Serious About the Church? And we're looking at this question through the lens of church as family, Jesus' family. And so last week, Daniel talked uh, a lot about um, college students and kind of our role in the lives of college students. And and this week, I want to go even further back in the timeline of a person's life and talk about how the family of God understands our role in the lives of our children. And I'm titling this, this teaching, It Takes a Village. I'm sure that you've all heard the proverb before that it takes a village to raise a child. There's another proverb that is similar to it that says, if you want to go fast, go alone, but if you want to go far, go together. Now, both of these proverbs are attributed to African proverbs, which originated in highly collectivist cultures to describe the way in which each individual has a responsibility to the community that they're a part of, to help that community begin to thrive and flourish. And and I think so often in our Western individualism, we translate proverbs like these individually, like, so we'll be like, how am I doing at, you know, being a part of community? I today am achieving collectivism really well. Like, we just, we translate these individualistically. And this isn't like a knock on Westerners. It's simply an observation that when people who are entrenched in individualism try to understand their role in creating a more collectivist culture, our heads kind of start to implode because it goes against the way we know how to think and perceive the world. There's actually numerous studies on how learning new languages has the ability to rewire our brains. And so learning new languages, it unlocks these new ways of understanding society, behavioral habits, what time is like, you know, and so much more. Um, Laura and Josh both have a cousin. Obviously, they both have a cousin because they're brother and sister. But they have a cousin who is a journalist that writes about all things China. And I think she's actually living over there in China right now. Uh, But she's married to an Iranian. And so their son speaks and writes fluent English Mandarin and Farsi. And I think he's actually learning uh, Spanish as well right now. And so her cousin was telling us last year that he can essentially write from left to right and right to left and top to bottom and go in and out of speaking and thinking in all of these languages whenever he wants. I mean, it's incredible. I'm, I'm blown away by what he is able to do with language at such a young age. And it got me thinking, you know, how is he going to perceive and understand the world differently than me, having this gift of understanding language on such a deeper level than I understand language. 
See, when our brains are so fully locked in on individualism, it's really difficult for us to comprehend some of the biblical truths about family and community that are talked about all over Scripture because our brains are working overtime to translate everything that we see in Scripture about the family into our very modern, ethnocentric, individualistic version of that very thing. But here's the thing that I think is really, really important. Scripture actually doesn't envision family to mean what our modern American world understands family to mean. Scripture always envisioned a much more diverse and collective version of family, which is what we're going to, again, be talking about and unpacking for the rest of this year. But it's a family that's made up of brothers and sisters and moms and dads, but also school teachers and neighbors and friends and so much more. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus actually talks about his family. And so starting in, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 46, it says, While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mothers and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mothers and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, Jesus was not being unkind to his blood family in this moment. That wasn't his point. But rather, I think he's trying to make a point that through him, family would begin to be defined differently. It was a family that was broadened to include the people around you who are also going on a journey of faith. A family that emphasizes the importance of collaboration and cooperation and the involvement of various individuals becoming community and who share in the upbringing and development of our children who carry one another's burdens and who genuinely feel the weight of navigating life with the people around you. See, I think that if Jesus was serious about the church, then we will begin to see ourselves less as an organization to be propped up, less of an event that we all just simply attend on Sundays, or a location on a map that says where our church exists. And rather, we will see ourselves as a family come together to help everyone in the family grow and develop into Christ-likeness. And so this morning, I want to talk specifically about our role as a church family in the lives of our children. You know, when Laura and I first started Missio, it was basically just our four kids and then uh, the two Jutras children, Charlie and Tommy. And we now have about 17 kids that are a part of our church or close to that. Um, and so there are actually some Sundays, which kind of is fun, where it feels like there's more kids than adults. I think one of the very unfortunate things about modern church, especially in America, is that a lot of times when people ask you how many people go to your church, they will either implicitly mean counting adults only, or they will very explicitly ask how many adults, not counting the children in your church. In our teaching team that we had uh, this last week, Chandler described it perfectly. He said when, when we were talking about where you know a lot of churches in regards to family um, he said that they tend to operate a lot more like airports where children are like checked baggage that we drop off, we pay a fee, and then we pick them up on the other end of our flying experience, hoping that everything is in one piece and they're not too damaged on the other end. And this has always you know, troubled me because so often this is not the way that Jesus saw or understood the idea of family and especially family as it related to church. 
Jesus would call entire households and communities into these new churches that were being started. Throughout Acts, you see entire families becoming followers of Jesus, not just individuals within those families, but entire families. And the thought that we would just count our church membership by discounting the children present would have been absurd in the mind of Jesus. Do you all remember the story of the angel performing a jailbreak for Peter from Acts chapter 12? I love this. God was the original prison break TV show for the ancient world. There was no jail that he could not break someone out of. And so he breaks Peter out of jail, and Peter goes and knocks on the door of the house where the Christians were meeting at this time, who were actually praying for Peter, who they thought was actually still in jail. And this servant girl named Rhoda answers the door. Well, she actually doesn't answer the door at all, but she kind of asks who is at the door. And Peter's like, it's me, Peter. And she's like, I don't believe you. But he's like, no, it is. And when she realizes that it was Peter, she goes and runs back into the main area of the house where the rest of the believers were gathered praying for Peter. And she says to everybody, look, Peter's here. Our prayers have been answered by God, to which none of them believe. And they all doubt what she's saying, right? But she insists in that moment. And finally, everybody else in that church is moved to go and open the door. And they see Peter standing there on the doorstep. I think we sometimes miss the importance of this moment because it isn't just a story about a cool prison break moment, right? It's a story showing the nature and makeup of this brand new church family. You know, most people agree that the servant girl Rhoda was this young child. And in this culture, women and children meeting together in in a small space for a religious gathering like this would have been pretty unheard of. If you remember, we talked about this a while ago, that the synagogue had different rooms for men and different rooms for women. And then the children kind of had their own space on the outsides of the inner space where the men and women were gathered. But not only that, a servant wouldn't have been really considered a part of the community much at all. And yet because of Jesus opening up access to the family of God, to all people, these new churches were breaking down all of the barriers of division and separation that existed. And this was so much so, in fact, that women and children and servants, people in need of healing and miracles, all were not only invited into the family and into the spheres of religious expression, but many of them became leaders and the ones to which the rest of the community could look at to see and understand what vibrant faith looks like. See, this to me is what is important about this story in Acts chapter 12. Yes, God broke Peter out of prison. But it was the unshakable faith of a young servant girl that moved the church to deeper faith in what was happening in the moment. It was her faith and her resilience in the face of everybody else's doubt that moved that church to action. You know, family was so central in the story of God that he actually built it into the very law of God. Leviticus chapter 19 Verses 33 through 34 is an often overlooked and flat out ignored passage in our modern church world. It says, starting in verse 33, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. This sounds pretty simple, right? Just don't mistreat foreigners. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. 
See, the language here that says treat them as your native born implied treating them like they were a part of your family. That the foreigner among you becomes a part of your blood family, a part of the family that has the same rights and access to family resources and relationship and goodness as your own child does. Now, I know this is kind of a bit of an aside, but the reason, at least in my opinion, that God added this to his law was first of all, because he always had a desire to care for the nations. This was always in his heart. But second, because the foreigner among you doesn't have the same familial network in your home as you do. And as a part of the nature of God's character towards hospitality, he calls his people to extend hospitality in a way that didn't just invite people in, it invited them into the most intimate parts of themselves, into the family. God was always at work from the beginning of time till now to recreate human existence and to provide a new family to humanity. And this meant, in the heart of God, to allow the foreigner to become an equal member of the family with you. This is how important this was to God. See, I think we so often view church as this space where the pastor is the voice of action and belief, and the adults are just simply there to agree and to do the work, and the children are to kind of just stay out of the way. And we arbitrarily put this hierarchical structure in place where some people receive and others have to simply take a back seat. But if Jesus was serious about the church, then we will begin to see the church as a family where all people not only have a voice, but have a journey of faith that can and will be used to move us deeper into the image of God and his work in the world. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus' disciples ask this question that on the surface kind of feels a little bit absurd, right? But then Jesus takes that question and uses it to reveal a truth that is deeply important. And so in Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 1, it says, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Now, we've talked about this passage of Missio in the past, that Jesus is trying to get the disciples to understand the nature of depending on him for strength and purpose. But this question, who is the greatest? is one that was, I think, often contemplated and wondered about by people in the ancient world. Even Jesus' own disciples were wondering about this question. And see, this is a question of of importance, of position, of influence and power. Who is the greatest, Jesus? And Jesus answers in the exact opposite way of how most would answer in that culture and time. He says, it's the children among you. They are the greatest. If you go further back in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is going to, he's going around kind of teaching and preaching to the surrounding towns and villages. And in verse 25 and 26, he says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you are pleased to do. See, both of these moments in Matthew Bringing in children to the conversation would have been really strange because, again, 
children in the ancient world didn't have many rights and they were often seen as commodities that would simply prolong the family influence and position in society. And Jesus says, look, the mysteries of the kingdom of God have been hidden from the wise and the learned. Who were the wise and the learned? They were seen as the religious and political influencers, you know, the people who held the power essentially. And as we all know, power is often abused by people who hold it, right? And this would have been exactly the same truth in the ancient religious world as well. So people in power often abused or withheld that power from people in lower positions, which was something that Jesus would routinely draw attention to and attempt to dismantle. And so twice, Jesus uses children to describe the way in which the kingdom is received and access to Jesus is more fully enjoyed. He says, become like these little children, lowly, not not seen as anything special or trying to attain positions of influence or prominence because the richness of life with Jesus has been revealed to them. Now, here's the thing about this. I don't think that Jesus would just simply use a metaphor uh, or sorry, I don't think Jesus would use children simply as a metaphor for how adults should behave better in the future. Jesus used children as an example because he was serious that children often have a better understanding of spiritual things and a relationship with Jesus than you and I do. I mean, let that sink in for a second. Children often have a better understanding of spiritual things and a relationship with Jesus than you and I do. Uh, Laura and Josh have an aunt uh, named Holly Allen, and she is essentially one of the premier experts in children's spirituality. And in one of her most recent books, she wrote that children's spirituality is a quality that is present in every child from birth by which children seek to establish relationship with self, others, and God as they understand God. And so the book goes on to discuss how to raise spiritually resilient children. And she lists some of the main qualities of resilience as it's connected to overcoming adversity. And then she says that these are all connected to the child's spirituality. And so the list of qualities of resilience that she lists are things like trust, identity, problem-solving skills, a sense of belonging, purpose, hope, you know, gratitude, optimism, self-efficacy, self-awareness, self-regulation, motivation to succeed, receiving and giving social support, and positive and supportive relationships with relatives, teachers, and other mentors. And so she kind of summarizes a lot of what she's talking about in the book by saying, building a resilient mindset is what we do when we provide children with opportunities to develop the skills qualities, and the characteristics necessary to fare well in the face of adversity that may or may not lie ahead. She goes on to to say that though children have an inborn spirituality that is their greatest source of resilience, they need adults to come around them and support that inherent spiritual quality. And so she spends a lot of time in, in her book talking about how to create these intergenerational church communities where children are not bags dropped off at the airport, but are vital and vibrant parts of the community of faith. And so she says, intergenerational communities are unique places for children's spirituality to flourish if we describe spirituality as their relationship with themselves, others, and God. 
inviting children into our settings, welcoming them and hearing from them honors these children and enlightens the adults as well. See, I think her point is what we are discovering about church itself, that our children will eventually be sent off into the world as participants and contributors who will face the same challenges and adversity that you and I wrestle with every single day. And we want our kids to experience the power and presence of a family of faith who will hang with them through the rough parts and celebrate alongside them in the victories. But so often that won't happen, that does not happen, unless they experience and embody that reality as they grow and develop as children right now. Barna is a Christian research organization, and they did some research a while back that showed that when people leave home and go off to college, the people who remained a part of church or kept their faith were twice as likely to have had a personal friendship with an adult other than their parents within their home church. They also did some research on the flip side of that question. And so they said that seven out of 10 students who left for college and no longer remained a part of the church said that they had no friendships with an adult at their church. Nine out of 10 of those students said they never had a mentoring relationship with an adult that wasn't their pastor. Now, we need to sit in the midst of that statistic for a moment. I think so often we wonder and you know ponder, why, why are people leaving faith? Why aren't young people a part of churches and all this kind of stuff? And here's some really good research <laughs> that is trying to answer that question. Seven out of 10 students who left for, for college who no longer remained a part of the church, said they had no friendships with an adult at their church. Nine out of 10 of those students said they never had a mentoring relationship with an adult that wasn't their pastor. You know, one of the challenges that I think the church faces is in seeing children as statistical potentials rather than actually seeing them as contributing members of the family. In other words, the reason we're talking about children in this teaching is not so that we can raise a national statistic or lower a national statistic. I think sometimes we get really focused on numbers and trends and we forget that those numbers and trends have faces and names. And our goal is not like to try to beat the odds. Our goal is to raise up our children, the children of Missio, with the love for God and for the people around them, and then to daily remind them that they are wanted and that they are needed at this church. That they are needed at this church, not as some self-preservation strategy for the future of Missio, but because they are living and breathing beautiful, vibrant parts of this community, that without them, we just simply would not be who we are. And because we long, we hope for them to be sent out into the fullness of their lives, marked with the blood of Jesus that will forever make them a part of our family here in Seattle, but also that they will be equipped with the resilience and ability to both find and forge that same kind of family wherever they are in the world. And so here is my hope and here is my dream for us as a church at Missio. 
you know, we've said this numerous times as a church family that we are all at different places on our spiritual journey, but we're headed in the same direction together, which means from the youngest of us in our church to the oldest, we are all at different places on our spiritual journey. And the diversity of those marks, like if the, if that journey of faith was like you could graph it out somehow, all of the marks on that spectrum of faith with Jesus, all of those together make up the story of our faith journey as a church. Every one of us has a role and a part to play in the lives of the people that make up this family. You know, as parents at Missio, we're not farming out the spiritual development of our children, but we are aware that we are limited in our ability to provide all that they need in their faith development. See, my dream is to see my boys follow around guys like Chandler and Ben because they want to learn from them and to forge a relationship with them. Honestly, my joy is when I see Deborah and Bethany inviting Sydney, my oldest daughter, out to coffee for her birthday because I know then that my daughter is getting to sit with these incredible women of faith. It's such a beautiful moment in my week when I get a text from Tara saying that they're driving by, dropping their girls off at school, and my family tries to scramble to get outside and time the wave and wish them well, which we didn't do this last week, but we will. Or moments when Lolly and Ben show up randomly to soccer games for our kids, or watching Holly and Dara and Negan show intentionality to my girls, or seeing Peter walk straight up to John and get his high five, or seeing Jackson and Celie and Sophie playing on the stairs together as you parents are watching them in adoration and love, or watching Daniel throw a burrito at, at my daughter, which is was a game he was trying to throw. It was supposed to, you know, throw a burrito at her. Or having Kendall and Tara and Laura work out in our home with our kids or getting them, you know, letting them watch and be around them. Or as we saw on Sunday, watching Oliver and Charlie and Gabriel and Cyrus graduate from children's class and to be invited to be full participants in the Sunday teaching experience. My heart swells knowing that my work as father, that Laura's work as mother, is magnified by the unrelenting love and kindness that you all have for these amazing and beautiful children in our midst. But this isn't the end of the story. Because, because our church, our sto- the story of our church as family can't end just simply in our giving as adults of relationship and spirituality to our children. It has to move into also receiving from them. You know, this is a podcast, and so if you're driving, don't close your eyes. But if you're not, then just take a minute and close your eyes. And I want you to picture the children of Missio. See, see their faces. See them a, a, as a collective group up on stage somewhere. Do you know the names of these children? Do you know their passions and joys? Do you know the things that they are struggling with or, or not confident in? Do you know their talents, their questions, the little things that make them who they are? We talked in our summer series this this summer about the desire of all people to both know and to be known in our relationships. And we as a family have the greatest opportunity to both know these children and to be known by them. I want us to be able to one day stand in front of each of these kids and say with all honesty and truth, here is what you taught me about what it means 
to have a life with Jesus. If you're driving, go ahead and open your eyes so you can see where you're going. You know, Jesus said the truths of life with him have been revealed to children. And that when we welcome a child like this, we are welcoming Jesus himself. May we be known as the Missio Church family that values, loves, and empowers our children as vital and contributing members of our trajectory of faith together. And may we learn to follow their faith into the moments that feel unbelievable, especially when they remind us simply by who they are that God is near. And so we want to leave some tangible things with you all over the next couple of months. We're going to be giving some just really tangible uh, action points with each teaching as a church. And so this month, all month, we're going to be highlighting the opportunity to be a part of the children's ministry at our church. Honestly, in most churches, the children's ministry is the last place that people volunteer or the place that often gets passed off and doesn't get volunteered in. And I think there's numerous reasons for this that are all valid. Parents want a break, right? People don't feel like they know what they can do or how to work with kids. They feel like they can't come up with good things to say or do and so on. And these are all valid. But as we mentioned earlier, that we have a growing children's ministry at Missio. And so we have been, we've been thinking about how to make this uh, you know, part of our role as a family. And so our goal as a church, and this is a big goal, we want um, all of Missio, every one of us, to volunteer to be kids' teachers on Sundays. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is because we want to honor the work that, that so many people have been doing before us, but it's also that they are taking on a lot more of the burden. And so the more of us who volunteer, the easier it is for all of us in this regard. But secondly, because we want you to know the names of these people, these kids, and we want you to get to know them, and we want them to know you. And so what does that very tangibly look like? All the lessons including materials, they're all pre-built and they're ready for you each and every week. All you have to do is kind of look over them uh, maybe the day before and then show up and follow the lessons. And so there's very little prep involved. We're asking people to volunteer for a one-month chunk. And so uh, we at Missio, we have children's class on the first, second, and fourth Sundays. The third Sunday, we never have uh, class. Uh, We do something called Family Sunday altogether. And so you would be teaching three uh, times in one month. And so we need two people for the older kids class and one additional person to help Gina in the baby's, baby's class. But that means if every one of us volunteers, then out of 52 weeks in the year, you're only gonna be responsible for teaching three of those weeks. And, and I do realize this is still a commitment But I want you to think about the impact it will have to have so many different people spending time with the kids in their class, moments to laugh with them, to learn with them, to share your life with them, and to hear them talk about faith. So this is church as a family, guys. It takes a village. God always had in mind this idea of us becoming family together, church as family. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful week. Bye, everyone.